Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that a new discovery shows that your lungs actually make blood. Anytime you come across one of those arrogant people who thinks they know everything there is to know about health and wellness and medicine, every day we're finding out cool new stuff. In this case, pulmonologists and scientists from UCSF discovered that new role for the lungs, according to experiments on mouse lung using video microscopy. This is a new technique, relatively new anyway, that lets you look at what's happening in living cells instead of in dead ones, and is completely blowing people's minds. And in this study, they found that the lungs aren't just for respiration, but they're making blood. A guy named Dr. Looney and his team discovered the lungs produce more than half the platelets that you need for clotting. And they found that the lungs produce more than 10 million platelets an hour. Oops, we didn't know that before. What this means is that there's plenty of runway for biohacking, for improvements in medicine, and living to at least 180. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. I'm recording with a, a friend of mine opportunistically at a conference called Consumer Health Summit, which brings together some of the biggest authors and people helping to influence the future of human health. And my longtime friend, like for more than two decades, Tim Chang, who's in charge of the very well-known venture capital firm Mayfield, uh, he's in charge of their consumer mm-hmm. practice. Yep. And the guy who's known as a conscious VC, but also known as the VC with the best abs oh, in Silicon Valley, according to BuzzFeed. He's, he's kind of blushing right now. Uh, anyhow, we're at the conference together, and I realized you guys would just love to hear his take, because if you have this mindset that the world's a bad place, technology is going to eat your life, and you don't have any control, you're going to hear from a guy who's created about $2.6 billion in venture capital exits, a, a very different story. Tim Chang, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave. It's such an honor to get to do this with you. A lot of people would have thought 10 years ago, 
venture capitalists are never going to invest in biohacking. They do life sciences, they do medical technology and stuff like that. But you were one of the first guys to, to look at this as a field and to say, I want to place some bets here. Why did you get into biohacking? You know, it was a personal transformation, a personal journey. It was core to who I was and my identity. And I thank you quite a bit for that. You were a big inspiration in those early days. Do you remember those early days we'd be talking about these things? We were oh, yeah. brainstorming things like basis before the term wearables existed. And it wasn't easy back then. There was no category. There wasn't even a term called wearables. And I remember different uh, partners, investment uh, folks would ask me, who the hell wants to wear something on their wrist to track their heart rate? <laughs> and now it's so commonplace that, you know, it's almost like, why aren't you tracking, right? But Do you have any yeah. venture partners who aren't wearing like an aura ring or some sort of a tracker somewhere? These days, I think they all do because yeah. they care. And I also think it's an age thing. As us guys get older in your 40s and 50s, you hit that oh shit moment with your doctor when your doctor says, you better change your behavior or bad things are going to happen soon. And that's when you really start to take your health seriously. And it's sad that you need the oh shit moment to happen. But that's why so many people in New York and L.A in San Francisco are all getting jacked as like 40 year old guys now because they have, they have to care. Well, you definitely be one of those. I, th I think your biceps are bigger than mine. Uh, so, so I guess the New York times called me almost muscular and they're, they're like, they're like your Tim is actually oh muscular. God. So what's your, I'm a jacked venture capital uh, routine, venture capitalist <laughs> routine. What, what do you do? Um, Strength training and high intensity intervals. A lot of what you talk about in the bulletproof exercise um, regime. I'm inherently actually lazy. I hate being in the gym. I just want to get my stuff done and go. <laughs> and it's so weird to see people hanging out there like it's a social club or something or, or like reading blogs. I'm like, no, man, just do your thing and get out. Right. Right. And so it's really um, four to five days of high intensity uh, intervals, but really these uh, uh, sets of either the five by fives on your heavy reps, right? Mm -hmm. And then sometimes alternating with uh, eight by eights with minimal rest between those. And I find that if you time it right, you're not like resting too long between them, you get your cardio in there as well, right? All right, so you're doing five by fives five times a week? varying by body parts as well. So you can kind of do them by okay. supersets, right? So it'll be sort of like chest and back sets and then, you know, those sorts of things. So you can concentrate on different body parts. But for me, you know, if you're just getting your work done quickly, you can get your sets done in like 45, 50 minutes and just kind of move on. So you're spending 45 minutes a day? Um, yeah, yeah. It, you know, I usually go two days on, one day off, three days on, you know, two, two days off kind of thing. I mean, I hate to say this given your track record, but your ROI on that seems pretty low. Um, that's I'm like not, almost an hour a day by the time you get to the gym. Well, th that's why I've got a tonal at home. And so this was a big uh, reason okay. I wanted to um, <laughs> invest in like the Peloton of strength, because you're right. You waste a lot of time getting dressed, going to the gym, going to the locker room, taking a shower, that sort of thing. Right. Okay. So, so tonal is a company that I don't think listeners probably have heard of yet. Uh, tonal just raised $83 million. They're considered like the, the, strength training equivalent of Peloton, as right. you said. I'm an advisor yep. and early investor That's right. because you introduced me, actually. Right. Thank you, Dave. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's it's an interesting idea. And it, it's the same ethos as Peloton and even Upgrade Labs, the right. Bulletproof spin out for the experience of this. It's that, can I shave 20 minutes a day off what it takes to look and feel a certain way? That's right. All right. What other things do you do to just shave at least 10 or 20 minutes a day off of what you do to stay, I hate the word healthy, but uh, we do to stay in a feeling good, high performance state. Meditation's a big one. And the other one was just the daily intermittent fasting routine. Like, you know, you've written a lot about that. It 
it worked wonders for me. And it wasn't that hard. Essentially, I just skipped breakfast. Yes, you know, it's, it's pretty that, easy. It's I pretty did easy. it today. <laughs> I mean, I do it by accident anyway for work when you're running yeah. around, right? But, you know, you time it, so you eat between, say, 1 and 7 p.m. or whatever, and you're automatically on, a, on an 18-6 split. You feel great. Your body gets a chance to take a break from digesting. And then lately, I've been trying to put in either a five-day prolon or straight-up five-day fast, you know, two to three times a year. And, man, those benefits last you for, like, months. It's pretty ridiculous. Anything over... About 48 hours mm-hmm. takes you into that. So when my uh, wife and kids are gone, sometimes I'll just say, you know, I love to cook and it's kind of nice to cook just for yourself because you can make whatever. Yep. But then you have to do dishes. So I'll just do a straight up two and a half, three day fast yeah. because it's less work and yeah. I'm just kind of in the flow. Totally. And a lot of people listening who haven't fasted are like, oh my God, it's it, it's going to be the end of the world. And the first time it's probably uncomfortable. Yeah. But if you cheat with some of the stuff that I've written about the first day, you put a little bit of brain octane in right, your right, black right. coffee and yep. suddenly you just don't have the, the thoughts and the hunger cravings and all that. I, I found it to be pretty painless. I noticed that too. Do you notice like day two, you're a little bit hangry, but you ride through it and suddenly day three, day four, you feel really clear, clean. You're probably yeah. kicked into ketosis by then. Your brain is functioning well. And yeah. If I get any of that on day two, I was it turns out there are studies that show the amount of caffeine in two small cups of black coffee mm. doubles ketone production. Oh, does it? Okay. Yeah. And this is why the water only fasting people make me roll my eyes. I'm like, come on, did you want to suffer or did you want to get it done yeah. and still like get your job done and not yeah. be yelling at your kids and your wife and all yeah. that kind of stuff? So I'll do that and I'll throw in a little bit. I'm talking even just a teaspoon of brain octane. All of a sudden that bumps your ketones. The coffee bumps your ketones. The fasting bumps your ketones. Yeah. Yeah. And all of a sudden the hangry goes away. It does. And then you might have a, a thought about food, but it's not a craving. It's not a craving. That's right. That's right. right. So you're doing this three times a year. You do a, yeah. a five-day fast. Yeah. You know, it really it's the equivalent of a nutritional meditation. It's learning yeah. to sit with that craving and not get it carried away by it. Just like reactivity to strong emotions. You know, you realize it's there, but you don't have to go chase it. You don't have to like give into it. Yeah. And I also found coffee was such a magic tool because it'd give you that one thing in the day you look forward to. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you stack your fast with coffee and green tea, there's all kinds of evidence. Yeah. And one of the things that, that we've just learned about fasting uh, that, that astounded me is that when you fast, the changes in your gut bacteria are really useful. And there's a species of gut bacteria that will actually eat the mucus that lines your gut. Mm. But it also produces new, better mucus, which is important for the the barrier to work so you don't get autoimmunity. Mm. Um, Fast for too long, actually are harmful to it, but a five-day fast, good news. Right. So if you're doing that, what are the other manipulations you can do? There's kind of bacteria that are present in thin people, Mm -hmm. the bacteriodides family, it eats polyphenols. So if you only eat polyphenols in your tea, coffee, whatever, mm-hmm. they're going to rise proportionally. Mm. And the other stuff, the Firmicutes family, the ones that are associated with obesity, just when the ratio's off, everyone has both, but they'll drop naturally yeah. and at, over the course of the fast. And then all of a sudden, when you're done with your fast, you have better lining of the gut, mm-hmm. more bacteriodides, less Firmicutes. And if you didn't feel pain during the fast, yeah. um, I, I noticed like the, the muffin top which for me, I have very little most of the yeah. time unless I've flown or I yep. eat something I shouldn't eat or whatever. Um, but after that, you just you just feel lean and tight. Yeah, like it's a spelt and it feels great. <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. All right. So you've got your routine down, which is kind of surprising because you're a dad mm-hmm. and you're a you know, big time VC, mm. but you're still investing 45 minutes a day in your workout routine. Yep. Okay. And you mentioned fasting as a form of meditation, mm-hmm. but... Uh, I know because well, we're friends. Yep. I mean, you've been meditating for quite a while now. 
When did you start meditating? Um, more in earnest, uh, starting two years ago. And, um, you know, at first, well, I, I admit, I tried it five years ago. All I would do is sit there and fall asleep or think about stuff. <laughs> that was and my so, path long Yeah, time. and so it took me a while and some other experiences to really tap into where you can go with it, right? And so um, I have finally learned how to sit for an hour at a time. Not easy, but it's something I'm trying to incorporate more regularly. And I think what people say about this is absolutely true. There's something magic at minute 40 or 45 where your mind just tires itself out of yapping at itself. And suddenly this amazing stillness will occur that some people will say, oh man, it will take psychedelics or whatever to get to that state. But it's much deeper. It's more sustainable. It's that uh, thing that people have been writing about for millennia. Psychedelics are are useful and interesting, but not without risk, but with reasonable risk to show you the state. But if you have to take them every time, like I have a friend said, I've done ayahuasca you know, 78 times, and like I'm pretty sure it's not working. <laughs> and that's the thing is when people get kind of carried away and chasing peak experiences or addicted to the vehicle, not yeah. necessarily the lessons. There's a great saying, which is once you get the message, hang up the phone, right? Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, now you've got this hipster spirituality culture, which is yeah. all psychedelic. And they're sort of like literally out Instagramming each other. I just did another ayahuasca sitting. I did five days in a row. You know, And, and it's almost like this weird one-upsmanship that's still fueled by pride and ego, which is crazy. It's it's super funny that you're putting it just out there like that. It is like, uh, was it I told? So oh, I told my son this because we were we were talking about the nature of ego, and I said, "Hey, Alan, I said my ego is smaller than yours." Love that. That's so funny. <laughs> That's like the essence of it. The, another joke I've heard is, "When's the last time you had a friend who did a vipassana retreat and didn't?" tell you about it or brag about it or post about it. <laughs> Are you saying that Vipassana is the new raw vegan? Did I hear you say that? Yes. It's, that's the funny thing. This, like all this spiritual work, it's like something we have to brag about. And that says something about our inner natures of this sort of stuff, right? Yeah. Whereas I've always found like true masters of anything, they just say less and less over time. <laughs> I, I was at a thing at Google years ago. It was some sort of a debate, uh, last minute organized thing. And one of the guys in the back of the room asking questions was like, hey, I want to be a, a vegan food activist, do you have any advice for me? And and my advice was, and I actually believe I swore, I, 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 I said, shut the F up and eat. <laughs> right? And and that's how you become a food activist. It, you shouldn't be a food activist. That just means you're a bossy jerk. But the bottom line is you eat and you have outsized results and people notice that your eyes glow and your skin glows, which wouldn't happen on that program anyway. But basically, like, why are you doing whatever you're doing? And when they ask, it's an invitation. But if you're one of those people who's out there, you're thumping your chest about your diet, you're just acting like a jerk. You so nailed it. I think that's the real lesson of any of this work is you become like a living invitation just by like walking your talk and yeah. quietly and doing it. And and people will notice and they will come up to you and ask you, what are you doing? I want to learn from you as opposed to you preaching or beating them over the head with, this is my journey. It's got to be yours too. You've actually shifted uh, since you started your deeper meditation practice a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, people who do a lot of meditation usually can, at least if you're paying attention, you can sort of notice that stuff about other people. Uh, but you're way, uh, you're way quieter and way less stressed. And I don't mean stressed like in the way you behave because you've yeah. always been a professional. You don't have a career that's grown the way yours has until if you can't handle your shit. Mm -hmm. Whether well, I am swearing on my own show, yeah. but but basically like there's a set of rules that yeah. anyone who succeeds in business learns to follow. Yeah. Usually by failing a few times early on. Right. And someone someone taking over the wing yeah. saying if you do that again, life is going to suck. So you know the game, you know the dance, mm -hmm. but you can also know when someone walks into a room and they're mostly doing the dance, but inside they're tweaked. Yeah. 
You used to have a little bit of this week. You were never particularly off the thing, but you have none of it right now. I think it's because, honestly, I just got over myself. I realized that my identity was my prison. I was so worried about having this curated, perfect identity, and it took so much work. And through things like meditation, you you get these little mini breaks from having to be yourself. Mm -hmm. And when you get that break, sometimes you see, my God, that identity is, it's like a prison. It's like this character that takes a lot of work to play and is not necessarily any more real than a character in a movie or a script. And it's so freeing to, to realize you don't have to play that role all the time. Like you don't actually have to do anything. Like there's actually perfection in every moment that takes no effort. Um, and it, it's a tricky dance because all of us are wired to want to do things and be ambitious. But at the same time, there's another side of it, which is there is so much wow in every moment. In a way, everything's already perfect too. When you say it takes no effort, I got to ask, how many minutes or hours per day do you typically meditate? Uh, usually minimum of 30. My ideal is to be at 60 minutes, but I am not consistent every day as much as I want to be. So I'll be the first to own that. <laughs> so you spend an hour and a half to two hours a day uh, in either exercise, so, yeah, yeah, combined, exercise or yeah, meditation yeah, combined. Yeah. That is, and you have... How old are your kids or a kid? A uh, six-year-old daughter. Six-year-old daughter, okay. So, I mean, my, my son's eight, and I've had, in fact, I'll just straight up admit it, I had a really nice meditation practice before I had kids. Yeah. I would, um, this is going back, you know, 12 years ago, uh, but I would wake up at 5 a.m. I became an early riser for a year or two, and I thought that was supposed to make me a better person. Yeah. And I would replace two hours of sleep with an hour of meditation at least. And yeah. It was all dialed in. Yeah. And then once the kids come, they have radar to know if you wake up. So yep. you will not meditate if you're in the house. Yep. Like it just doesn't work. Yep. Uh, and so that was bad. Fortunately for me, I have 40 years in and neurofeedback and I can cram you know, years worth of meditation in and, and just with some breathing and all. I, I'm, I feel like I've still made progress, but much less than if I had an hour a day. Yeah. How do you manage having an hour to work out <laughs> an hour to uh, maybe whatever, 30, 40, 50 minutes mm -hmm. to meditate and your dad time and mm -hmm kind of a demanding career like, like what's what's your algorithm for that just say no i've dropped so many things <laughs> now you know the networking events the breakfast meetings and um i have a policy no meetings before 10 30 now or even 11 a.m because you need your think time as well right so you got to carve out time because uh, time is limited despite your intentions and bandwidth and, and your love being infinite right you just you, yeah. you have to cut back on something so it's been dropping a lot of things and being a parent definitely forces you to prioritize right you're always calculating the roi in your time i could be playing with my kid i could be meditating i could be doing other things um, but it also goes to show you how much time you maybe run around chasing things you don't really need to do i think a lot of us have that message that says i need this i i need that and I need to go to this or I will miss out, miss out FOMO. <laughs> so what's your FOMO cure that you use on yourself? Um, what I realized was that <laughs> being this simulation that we're in, none of it really matters. And so therefore, unless something evokes a hell yes, or it really brings out joy for you, it might be obligation or FOMO that's really driving the boat on that decision of, of what to do. And it's really fun to scan for your within to be like, hmm, I feel like I got to do this, but how much of that is obligation? And uh, uh, I've had some uh, really interesting executive coaches say, if it feels like obligation, don't do it. Like in, in a classic one is like, mm -hmm. hey, can I pick your brain? 
<laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm pretty hard on those. The answer is no. Right. Right. And it, it's, it's, if, if you want to pick my brain for just 15 minutes, that's 15 minutes. I don't just play ping pong with my kids. Right. And it comes from somewhere or I'm not going to meet my obligation to my employees and I'm right. not going to write my next book. Yep. Uh, but to me, the, the burden of saying no, just the time burden because of the inbounds. And you probably get it worse than I do because yeah. you're a guy who can write you know, $20 million checks with your eyes closed with just your left hand. A lot of emails. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, a lot of emails. And all. Do you have you know a team of, of no people who work for you in terms of administrative assistant, junior associates, or like, do you farm out your nose or do you actually do to, your nose yourself? To a degree, my assistant Sue is a superhero and she jealously guards my time for me. And um, she'll even challenge me. It's like, look, do you really need to do that? Do you need to run across town for that one? Is that really worth the lost transit time, et cetera? Right. So you need helpers to help you say no. Yeah. It, it's it's changed things for me. And in my experience is that the assistants from the venture capital business are some of the best in the world at doing that because of the pressure that you're under. Like, could you give me some money? Could you give me some money? Right. Can I pick your brain? Right. And and you just get all the sort of the the greed, the people who are really sort of in the hungry ghost mentality, like, I have to talk to you. Right. So the filtering function has to be strong. And my EA, Ani, who's also a rock star, came out of uh, 10 plus years in the venture business. Yep. Uh, okay, so you and I both have professional no-sayers working for That's us. That's right. One tip, I, I was trying, do you do this too? The Warren Buffett technique, which is like you try not to book meetings um, at all. You just don't don't schedule. And if somebody really wants to meet with you, you'd say, look, ping me the day before or the morning of or something like that. And it can free up some time. So one practice I've done is like no meeting, no schedule Tuesdays or whatever it is. Whoa, I think I'm <laughs> going to do that. My team will probably kill me if I do that. But, but, uh, but I like it, that idea. It guards your time. So at least one day a week, you get that un you know, uh, uh, unencumbered time to think or process. And if things come up uh, that emerge that you do want to do, you can you can slot them in at any time. Right. It, it's kind of like Burning Man, uh, where you have serendipity that's allowed to happen because, yes. I don't know, no one even knows what time it is. We're all just walking around with, with just doing whatever. That's right. So yeah, I, I would say maybe I'd benefit from structuring some more serendipity. I tend to have very yeah. structured days just yes. because of the number of things I'm doing. So you can literally structure unstructured days, yeah. right? So that I try to do that one to two days a week. And it's kind of cool that freedom it allows. And what I notice is there's time to do, you know that um, Eisenhower matrix where there is important but not urgent? Eisenhower matrix is that mm -hmm. the two vectors are important, not important, urgent, not urgent. Yes. We always get stuck usually in the fire drills of like um, important and urgent or not important, but urgent, right? Okay. Those things. And the one that never gets uh, done is important, but not urgent. And those are often the most strategic things. They require think time, proactivity, reflection, et cetera. And you have to guard unstructured time to work on those. Okay. That is, uh, that is good advice. And some of the, one of my favorite executive coaches who's been on the show, uh, Dan Sullivan, mm -hmm. uh, who's just an inspirational guy uh, in his mid seventies. And just, he's like, I'm going to live to, I forget 150 or something like that. Yeah. But, but just this mindset that's unbelievable has been teaching that for years, but I haven't been to his class in a little while. So thank you for the reminder. Mm. And I, I would, I would say I'm probably failing on that one right now, but yeah, we all could be yeah. better at it. <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't help that, you know, I, I started a few companies back oh, yeah. before I, was, I did Bulletproof and they're still humming along like 40 years of Zen, the meditation stuff. Yeah. So I, I don't spend as much time as I want on that. Totally. But it's, it's still out there as like yeah. a little an open file. So I have a question for you. Do you schedule email time, you know, like only block off email in certain chunks of the day or is it more interrupt driven throughout? I did schedule email time for years 
but I found that I actually used it more as unstructured time mm. because of the natural resistance to doing email. Got it. So what I do now is it's more interrupt driven, yep. but because my assistant is awesome, uh, she will take my emails and say, this is stuff you need to know today. Gotcha. This is stuff you need to reply to today. Mm. Right. And if it's really urgent, she'll text me and say, you need to look at this one. Ah. So I'm not, you know, just checking it because I have to check right, it. Right, I right, might right. do that opportunistically, but I feel zero obligation to That's email fantastic. without a text message. I just don't care if you email me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it's not that someone won't respond yep. probably yep. Uh, and that I might respond yep. if it makes it through my filters. Right. But it's not even, I could spend two hours a day on email and my life would be no better. That's right. But you've set up a cognitive offload for a screen, yeah. which is very powerful. What do you do? Um, assistance uh, can help with that. I need to get better at setting up more workflows and structures that will do that first screen. Like that would be really helpful. Um, one example is, you know, you can give your assistant access to your email and they can read it. And that's, that makes a lot of sense because they will act as your first screen for you. The thing I'm having a hard time with, uh, I want to get your take on this. Messaging apps, I think, are becoming the new mind killers. They're horrible. And I'm live on probably five different messaging networks and they are purely interrupt driven, but expected to be always on and always responsive. And people get upset because delays in, you know, these messaging apps that show that you read it, but you haven't replied yet, create stories in their heads that, you know, like you're blowing them off or whatnot. And uh, you can literally ping pong between messaging apps all day long because they're interrupt driven by nature. I haven't done this yet, but you just inspired me. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes when people have vicious, mean voices in their head, the mm. best thing to do is to poke the dog. Mm. So uh, on the iPhone, there's a little thing you can do uh, where you can, I think it's like the autocorrect function, but I, I do it so you can have, you know, your address, you type three yeah, letters, yeah, the address yeah. comes out. So you can have a little message that says, I'm blowing you off. Yeah. Until later. That's so interesting. And yeah. so you just feel like, like, like B-O for blow off. Right, you right, just, right, right. B-O, B-O, B-O. It's like an autoresponder. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah, you have to actually yeah, do, you have it, to do it. It's yeah. a two-letter autoresponder. Right, right, right. Because here's the deal. Uh, I remember I've talked to uh, a relative of mine, a millennial. And yeah. she's like, well, you know, I, I texted him and he didn't text back. What does it mean? I'm like, it probably means that he's in the bathroom. Right. Like, like it probably means he was doing something. Right. It means nothing. Right. And it wasn't about you. It That's was right. about him. That's right. But all of us have that annoying thing. Right. So I guess I stopped caring what people think if yeah. I don't respond. Even if there are people that I you care about, it's, it's like if they're going to run that story in their head, it's going to cost them, but it's not going to cost me because right. if I make my life around managing the stories in people's heads, yeah. that's bad. Yep. Um, that said, you know, you're competing to get deals with other big VCs and there's going to be times when you have to manage that because it's like playing poker. Right. 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 So maybe you, know, you don't want to apply that everywhere. Um, the other app that I want you to fund mm. is an autoresponder mm. that looks at every single messaging app on my phone mm-hmm. and makes up something like I'm driving now. Oh, that's <laughs> excuse on demand as a service. <laughs> it randomly chooses from 10 of them. Right, 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 right. I'm cooking. I'm talking. To I'm my sorry. Mom. I'm in the bedroom right now. <laughs> and I get all sorts of embarrassing. ones. It, 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 seems, it seems like something you could do. That's hilarious. <laughs> you know, you'd think at some time it'd be sort of like, hey, my bot will talk to your bot. They'll figure it out. <laughs> I think it's probably already happening. Starting to, to be honest. I mean, you saw the Google autoresponder yeah. stuff they had a while back. Yeah. And have you played with Otter? There's an email app that's supposed to do oh. that stuff. I tried it for two days. And I will check it that wasn't out. worth it. Yeah. Or sorry, no, that's not Otter. Uh, that's Astro. Oh, Astro. Okay. Yeah. I will check that yeah. out. Yeah. Uh, so there, there's a few things out there, but I have spent a lot of time looking at this and I finally just decided there's a fetishization I used to have 
uh, in probably the mid 2000s yep. because I'm a computer yeah. hacker by yep. training yep. and you can automate mm-hmm. and all this. Mm-hmm. I would be willing to spend 16 hours of my time automating a process that cost me 10 seconds a day. Mm. And like the ROI on that is never there. Right. But it was sort of just like, I'm going to dominate this 10 second steal of my time every day, yep. no matter what it takes. That's right. And I feel like a lot of the modern productivity movement has gotten there. Mm-hmm. And I'm to the point where I probably could solve this problem. I, I could probably go start a company about this if I really, really wanted to. Right. I'm just not, I don't want to. Right, so right, 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 right. I'm going to hire someone right. to help me with it because I'm in a position as a CEO where I can. Sure. Uh, but for the rest of us out there, it, it feels, knowing your investment philosophy, it, it feels like you could save 10,000 lives. It, it, we're talking about in two-second increments. Right? Right. If, if you just save everyone two seconds per day, yep. that's whatever, two seconds times 300 million in just the in just the U.S., right? And it, it snowballs. Yeah. So uh, do you think about your investments think, that way? I do. I think a lot about, again, is this good for society? And good meaning, is it helping your cognitive health? Because a lot of what this is, this, every little decision chews up mental bandwidth yeah. and it wears on you. It drains your willpower as well. And you ever feel yourself exhausted just looking at the red dot notifications even, right? And is so what, what those red we, dots mean? <laughs> uh, that's what basically it's like it's chewing up your willpower and your mental bandwidth but can you save mental bandwidth for people uh can you avoid distraction distraction you've talked about this distraction is a mind killer context switching is a mind killer right and so um i've been thinking a lot about how do we help automate these things but also maybe just add a bit more mindfulness to things and what i mean by that your point on us fetishizing Automation is the heart of Silicon Valley. We love to make things convenient to the point that you don't touch or talk to another human being. Mm -hmm. But I've realized something. That which we make convenient, we lose connection with. When food is a McNugget, do you care how it got there, what animal it came through, what process? When it's that convenient and abstracted, you have no connection with the origin of where it came from. So the price, the hidden price of making something convenient through technology is to lose connection with the source of that thing you made convenient. We're doing that now to human relationships, right? Because when everything is just via an emoji or text, you've lost out in the body language, you've lost out in the eye contact, you've lost out in this in-person, you know, mimetic communication that, you know, animals can have physically, but when we're wired for, right? And you lose so much meaning there. Um, So that's the thing is like, can we go go back to slow tech that maybe is inconvenient, but makes you a little more grounded or mindful? And in a way, I don't know, meditation is the original behavioral technology for that. I think that's why I do it because although it seems like you can't pull an hour from your day, if you can invest an hour for that meditation, it'll help you sail through the rest of the day and drop all the other bullshit that you might've just gotten up caught up in like that Facebook flame war about you or something that you would have otherwise gotten sucked into or something. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I gave some advice. I was interviewed on stage, uh, the day before you spoke at consumer health summit here and people asked about, you know, what do you do about mm-hmm. trolls? Mm-hmm. And uh, my final meditation after having dealt with a few like very focused, targeted, mm-hmm. financially motivated troll attacks was I just arrived at the the say my name. Like, oh, they're talking about my work. That's awesome. Right. Could you, could you talk about it some more? And it generally, it works. But to get there, I had to do a lot of meditation. <laughs> you really do. And, and what you're learning is if someone hates you, that's not your business. Yeah. Similarly, if someone loves you, that's neither your business either. That's yeah. their business. <laughs> yeah. You don't control other people's emotions. You never will. Right. You can manipulate them, but you can't control them. Right, 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 right. right. And if you make it your business to manipulate a hater to make them love you, they probably won't, but you'll be unhappy as, as, a, as a fact. And then you wasted all that time and energy. Yeah. 
yeah, you, you could have just used it eating chocolate and been so. Off. Back to your original question, I think the reason I'm a little more still these days is I care a little less about what people think about me. Growing up, you know, with Asian tiger parents, I was programmed to please people and try to get perfect scores. They were all external validation measures. You know, it was like a heat-seeking missile for that. And learning to let go of that and just care a little bit less about what people think about me has been so freeing. All of us are stuck in that trap and the ultimate freedom is to not worry as much about what people think about us. Not worry about as much of what you think about you even. And you did this in two years of mostly daily meditation. That, reading a lot of texts and talking to a lot of people and and the biggest thing, finally not being so scared to be vulnerable, I think, with friends. You know, what I notice is you bond with people through vulnerability. And so in in many ways, I think vulnerability is the ultimate superpower. All of us are just looking for someone to be vulnerable as an invitation so you can open up your hot messness and be like, me too, I'm a hot mess too. (laughs) It's tough for everyone to be vulnerable, probably harder for men than women just because of socialization. But it's harder for executives and extremely powerful people. And you're in both of those shoes, just powerful venture capital business, you know, the, the, the big dog firms. Uh, you know, you're, you're out there and you're in a leadership position there. So that is probably the hardest position of all to be vulnerable in what specific meditation visualization or practices or, or anything else did you do to be able to first turn on your vulnerability? Oh, there's a meditation. Jack Kornfield teaches one loving kindness. It's about empathy and compassion for other people. And you literally send all the love you can for that person. Try to understand their viewpoint, their perspective, you know, take their viewpoint. That's super helpful. And so when I work with a founder and just envision, my God, all this stress they're going through makes it a lot easier to have compassion, but also open up and be like, man, this is a lot you're juggling, you know, and, and try to be in that more vulnerable space. And also being outside of the boardroom where you have to have your game face on, being able to take a walk or just have a coffee with him or her and and be in a more private setting where you can, you know, take the game face off and, and be a bit more authentic about things too, I, I think helps a lot. Usually when we're in these official settings, that's when your game face is on maximum and you're so worried about how you're perceived. So do you cultivate like a community where this is my no game face community versus my public Instagram image kind of thing? Yeah, a big one for that was I'm trying this thing now where on social media, I try not to promote myself. I want to promote others and ideas. And so maybe you can use social media doesn't have to be bad. What if you used it not about the me part of media, but others or ideas or causes or something like that. So that's been one practice I've tried. And then um, another is to just practice vulnerability with a lot of of friends and um, my you know, a, a men's circle. I think every guy should have a men's circle. And and it's been super powerful to have like a set of brothers that you can just totally open up to. Typically, men, were so bad at that. We go to sports bars or go to sporting games to avoid talking about feelings because it's easier just to, I don't know, watch the Red Sox player and talk about that instead, right? Mm-hmm. It's a substitute for talking about what you really feel. But as we get older, I think men really need men's circles, just like women need women's circles. And when you have that and you can spill your guts, Oh my gosh, is that liberating? You know, people can talk about like, I think my marriage is failing. I think my kids hate me. Like really let it out there because it's, you don't feel so alone because you realize we're all dealing with the same bullshit. You're not alone. Everyone, nobody's crushing it. Everyone's a mess. (laughs) It's one of those reasons that some of the most powerful personal development events I've ever been to, I once if there's, it's an event because there's more than one person there. Mm -hmm. It's not just you and a therapist on a couch. Mm -hmm. It's you and a group of people. And then you look around and, and two magic things happen. One is you can tell yourself 
thank God that's not me when you hear about someone else's crap. Right. Right. And then you can dump what feels to you like it's really big and share it. And people look at you and generally they're supportive or they just don't care. Right. As in, not they don't care about you, but it, they didn't think any less of you. They never thought less. And they might think better of you even. <laughs> exactly. Right. So, so all the fear goes away. And then all of a sudden like, okay, that was sort of liberating because I realized my life is not as bad as I thought compared to other people. It's right. average or maybe even above average. But most importantly, no one cared about my deepest, darkest, most shameful stuff. They were all just yeah. a hall of mirrors in my head. Yes. And I, I first did something like that when I was 30. And yeah. man, it, it really was transformative. And that, that's why I build that in on the personal development side of what I do around the, the bulletproof coaching stuff, around the neurofeedback stuff. Yep. Because if you don't have a witness to whatever yeah. the heck was going on in your head, yeah. you'll hide it. No, it's true. In fact, I think your journey was inspirational because it started from a place of desperation and vulnerability. You know, you would talk I mean, about, you, I you, was overweight, I was dying. back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was basically because, you know, you felt like you were going to die if you didn't change, right? Yeah. And that's a great motivator. And to share that, I think, is powerful. It's vulnerable. It's authentic. People relate to that because they're probably feeling the same. Keith Frotzi taught me a really great technique next time you hold a dinner salon or a gathering. When it comes to round of self-intros, ask everyone to state their name, maybe what they do, but most importantly, what they're struggling most with life in right now. By the third or fourth person, people are just spilling their guts and revealing their deepest, darkest secrets. And the amount of bonding and closeness and empathy you feel for everyone in the room immediately is really striking. Um, I did one of Keith's dinners recently where he did that, uh, which, which was really cool down in L.A., and uh, so this will be funny. It's it's kind of meta, but the one thing that I struggle with the most mm. is the word struggle, <laughs> uh, because th- there's something yeah. around. I I attempted to do this, yeah, uh, and I failed, yeah. But my attempt was clean, right? And I used all of my effort, yep. for the result, right? And I still hit the wall, right? And that's okay, yeah. But if I'm struggling with it. It means that I wasted effort that should have gone into the activity in the struggle. I mm-hmm. created friction. Like mm-hmm. the, the word struggle itself means yep. self-created friction. Right. Because you don't have to struggle. That's true. That's true. Right. And so my path of meditation and to bed, all the that stuff has been to learn struggle is unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Pain will happen. Right. But you don't have to struggle in response to pain. Right. And effort will happen, but you don't have to struggle in response to effort. Right. And if you have the learning and the control to not struggle, right. I can say, I'm working really hard on this and I fail every day at this, but I'm not struggling with it. I'm grateful for the failure because I'm still learning. Yes. And that mindset for me feels liberating versus struggling. So they asked me the question, I'm like, am I in the arrogant jerk who's going to like criticize struggling because I'm better than everyone else? Or am I just going to say, it kind of set the set it aside and just say I'm working on, which is what I always do. Working on is really good too. But that you've hit the punchline of a lot of this is that Pain will happen in life. Suffering doesn't have to because suffering is the story we wrap around that, right? Suffering is when you create a narrative that says, woe is me, I'm the victim, yeah. why does it always happen to me, right? That's that's our minds that are built to be basically narrative creation engines, right? It's a survival mechanism because you're always looking for cause and effect so that you have better survival strategies, but that leads to us writing stories around everything that arises, very well said. But you sound a little bit more like a monk than a VC, though. Um, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> starting to, you know, after 20 years of doing this, I realized I don't have a clue. I don't any rule or heuristic I tried to make always got broken. Things that I thought were slam dunk, total crater. Something that was a random flyer, no idea if it worked, blew up and became a huge success. So what I realized is just 
I don't know. And all I can do is be curious about things, not be too attached to that outcome. But I love this notion of falling in love with the process, the journey of building things, you know? Mm-hmm. It's almost like a form of play or curiosity. It's, yeah. you know, like it's like, I don't know if this will be big or not, but it's kind of fun to build. <laughs> it's fun to build, but you're also in a place in life where if you screw it up real big, your family's still going to eat. That's fair. And I wrestle with that a lot. There is this saying sometimes that enlightenment is a rich person's game, right? Like you have to have the luxury to go do this Vipassana retreat or do an ayahuasca sitting or whatever, right? But, uh, you know, it, I'd like to think there could be tools and approaches for even those who are in the midst of the struggle that don't have a lot of resources to find a bit more peace in maybe these meditative or mindfulness type of practices to find flow even in that in the midst of that scarcity survival mode. It feels like there are a set of practices like improving sleep quality, uh, like learning how to meditate uh, or do different nostril breathing techniques and things like that, that have no cost. Mm -hmm. But then you're dealing with someone saying, well, yeah, they have no cost, but Tim gets an hour a day. I take public transit to work, which takes three times longer than someone who takes an Uber and Mm. I can't afford an Uber. Mm. So it's even just the luxury of time. Time is a luxury. Meditate. Time is a luxury. Part of it. That said too, you know what I keep wondering? Maybe there's nothing sacred about sitting on the pillow. What if every moment, the in-between moments can be a meditation too? That's what the masters all say. That's what they all do. So even when you're waiting in line for Starbucks or whatever, that can be a moment. It's just tuning into that presence, the wow in that moment, right? So right. I believe that there will be, and I'm actually actively working on creating technology for enlightenment to make mm. it faster yes. to, to reach that state yes. of enlightenment Yes, uh, just by using stuff to remind the mind yes. to pay attention to that. Yeah, And I'm not saying I know all the details, but I, I like to think that there's been some progress in that space. I think you've been working on it, like 40 years of Zen and those sorts of things. Yeah, that, that's right? the kind of stuff I'm talking about. Yeah. But even just initially talking about heart rate variability, that's why I joined Basis right. as you know the co-founder of the North right. American stuff. Right. Um, Basis, if you're listening, was a wristband company, one of the very first mm-hmm. ones uh, that did wrist tracking right. and Sorry. the first one to get heart rate from the, your wrist the way your Apple Watch does today. Right, right. And I joined it because we can get this heart rate variability, which is a measure of stress from the wrist, and we never did it. Uh, but that was what excited me about the thing was, what if I could show people in real time, they're more stressed when they meet with their boss, let's go work on the stress. That's right. Uh, that was one of the first technologies that might have led there because heart That's rate right. variability is tied to alpha brainwave states. That's and, right. Um, so I, I feel like there's a renaissance coming, but are you investing in these neuroscience kinds of things? I'm not asking Definitely. for money for 40 years and that'll no, not, that's not an investment thing, Definitely so. but I'm just like, as an investor, what, yes. what's your neuro is yeah. the big new frontier. We've got new areas like digital vagal nerve stimulation yes. with things that are, for example, just like a, a Bose headphone form factor you could do for that. Right. I love We've that. got TMS, right. With a, a magnetic, a transcranial stem. We've got, use it, yeah. right. Halo neuro. We've got the reading technology that interacts on uh, Muse headsets, those sorts of things. Um, But there's all these new modalities we're opening up. We're now going to see the rise of digital uh, pharmaceuticals you know, mm-hmm. digiceuticals like uh, Adam Gazelle at UCSF and Achille, they're on the precipice of getting FDA approved for video games to be able to treat ADD and those sorts of things. Pair, uh, uh, pair therapeutics, I think, is uh, on that path as well. So we're going to have digital tools that can be reimbursable by payers and insurers um, along these neuro pathways, which would be really exciting. A lot of the reason that I started the early, the definition of biohacking and all is that I realized the body would do stuff that was kind of scary and awesome. One of the things I did is 
I did visual retraining of mm. the nervous system in my eyes and mm -hmm. the muscles in my eyes. Mm -hmm. And I went from 2060 back to 2015. Mm -hmm. But I did it with manual tools and it was incredibly exhausting and all. And I look at what is going on there. There's classic disruption of the whole eyeglass industry if you can have a piece of tech that shows someone's eyes how to behave themselves so you can train away yep. what would otherwise require glasses. I, I, I think it's inevitable. That's right. But you're a consumer-focused VC. Mm -hmm. A lot of the stuff is medical. And the medical-focused VCs have very different valuations. Yep. Medical companies spend $100 million in clinical trials, and they're worth billions of dollars in acquisition. That's right. What's happening between, how do you know if it's medical versus consumer? Awesome question. This ties back to the very first question you asked me about, how did I get started investing in this type of area? Because traditionally, it fell between the cracks, between traditional healthcare VCs who only understood, for example, FDA pathways, yeah. reimbursement or whatnot, and regular consumer internet VCs who only understood, say, you know, in-app purchases or subscription models and that kind of stuff. <laughs> the vapid stuff. Right. But it's opening up now. There's more and more investors that understand this new area where you can have new approaches to go to market where, yeah, you could apply for clinical trial and go FDA route down the road, but you can go to market initially even with direct-to-consumer, right? There are optimizers or early adopters or whatnot happy to pay out of pocket. Maybe these things qualify for FSA, HSA spend plans from your employer, those sorts of things. But um, this allows you to play the game differently than just waiting to get FDA approved or to go through the painful long, you know, kind of like a, a slow sales cycle of just going through the benefits consultants or whatnot to reach employers, that that sort of thing. So that you're, you're broadening this market of things that have FDA or healthcare applications down the road, but you can start with direct consumer first. I love that answer. Having worked for, before I, I did mm -hmm. basis uh, with what you ended up investing in, uh, I was at a pure medical play mm -hmm. uh, company as an advisor. I'm doing a stick on cardiac monitor mm. that today you can do on the back of your phone right. for a couple hundred bucks. A company called Cardia makes it. But back then they were spending amounts of money that made me cry right. as an entrepreneur on just dumb trials that didn't do anything. Right. Even though the data was, was very clear and I right. just realized how wasteful it was. Yep and how slow it was to, to do anything. And I said, where's your video gaming market? And right. they all laughed at me. Uh, but I, I'm seeing almost everything mm -hmm. that is medical mm -hmm. has a non-medical use. Right. Um, other than surgery, but even then, it, there's cosmetic surgery that you know maybe I optimally wanted to improve my liver ducts because mm -hmm. I wanted a high-performance liver. I have no idea. Right. But other than those weird cases where it's gonna be medical on both sides, it seems like there's a huge swath of things where you and I and a sane human being would say, that is something that humans can just do. Right. But there's also a regulator out there who's happy to say, I needed a bigger regulatory budget. Right. And these digital therapeutics, look, if I want to look at blinky lights, we've had light sound goggles for 30 years that'll put yourself in a different brain state. And I've used them on airplanes and people right. make fun of me. Right. Right. But someone could walk in tomorrow and say, this is not something you have a right to use. So where's your take on medical freedom as just a basic human right in all this? This will get pretty interesting because, you know, I have had companies like Lumosity, they got yeah. taken down by FTC, right? That was um, carefully watching these claims. And and so that uh, can arise as well because we have to be careful about, I guess, the claims we're making for some of these sorts of things, especially if they're diagnostic. That's where people get really spooked when you're yeah, making If right? you diagnose, treat, or cure anything, right. 
you're a drug, even if you do it with wheatgrass powder. Right. And that, but that's only in the U.S. and some other highly regulated regimes. Right. So it's it's really bizarre that people. Uh, like there's a famous case where a guy who made uh, cherries, like mm-hmm. he was a cherry grower and mm-hmm. he said cherries had some health benefit that they do in 20 different studies. Mm-hmm. But when he did that, his cherry crop was seized. Right. And so I think there's a, like a climate of fear around saying that something works right. when there's three studies that do. Right. When the reality is that most of what we think works, including right. in pharmaceutical drugs, we think it works, right. but we're gathering more data and may change our mind later. Right. Like, wouldn't it be cool if we could all just say that about flashing lights in your eyes about all these different cool new things coming along. My fear is that it may take 10 or 15 or 20 years for the companies to make cool stuff to be able to talk about it working. Right, 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 right. Because they may be required to have some clinical body of data to make that claim or they'll get taken down, right? That sort of thing. So One of the things that brings me joy is that there is no one on earth who can stop an influencer Mm. from saying that something worked Mm-hmm. on their own channels, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? So if you make something that you know very well, say cures Alzheimer's disease, you're not allowed to say that unless you're a drug company. Right. But if someone or another, some big celebrity picks it up and says this worked, and then there's a huge wave of things, people talking about it. So I feel like social media and communities are actually the way claims are gonna get out around foods, around devices and things like that. Do you look at that when you're investing in companies and sort of say, you know, is there a route around saying what we know is to be true, but we're not allowed to say? Yeah. You know, the thing is now that we're in the attention economy, sometimes celebs and influencers have more say, more sway over audiences than sort of more of these official platforms that could be good and bad, right? It could be a bad thing. It could be a bad thing like anti-vaxxers, you know, like Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So, but every startup now is trying to leverage content marketing and micro and macro influencers for these strategies YouTube videos, podcasts, et cetera, because it's the new way to try to get attention and not be dependent just on Facebook or Google ad spend, those sorts of things. It's all story-based these days. Yeah, it it is story-based. All right, you brought up something that we're going to have to talk about now. You talk about <laughs> anti-vaxxers here. As a, a guy who's married to a medical doctor, author of a book on fertility, yep. I am not pro or anti-vax whatsoever. They're a tool set and it pisses me off when people say fat is bad for you or fat's good for you. I'm like, could you tell me which fat (laughs) in what state eaten at what time of day for which human being? Because that's the reality here. And I, I kind of feel like social media and a lot of the tech out there has made it. So everyone is on the extreme, you know, a vaccine will kill you. Well, obviously not because we have people alive. That's right. And on the other end, you know, you should have all the vaccines possible. That's right. uh, Which, I don't know. I've seen some evidence and and I would say a more conservative schedule might be a good idea, especially for certain genotypes. Yes. So how do you navigate that Uh, conversation when you're looking at it as an investor and as a human being? What you've just highlighted is the inevitable outcome of when media models are free and ad-based because you therefore have to be an extreme to stand out from the noise of all the other content Mm. and get noticed at all. It either has to kill you immediately or it's the best thing ever 
everything else falls on deaf ears in the sea of content fighting for your attention out there. That's what's happened now. That same thing's happened with politics, everything else as well. And it's a flawed business model because our brains are wired for danger, novelty, all these sorts of things. Remember, you know, I, we talked about these five Fs, right? Yeah. All human behavior is because you're trying to judge whether you should fight it, flee from it, feed on it, fuck it, or friend it, or follow it, right? Yes. And so it's, it's always looking for these danger signs. So content has to take these extremes just to get attention at all. And that's terrible because the real answer, just like you've said, is the answer is always, it depends. But the human brain hates that. It, it wants to <laughs> minimize uncertainty and it wants shortcuts, heuristics, and quick causality, right? And that's the problem is we're fighting the operating systems in our brains to deal with that because the reality is complex and nuanced, but our story making engines in our brains don't want to deal with that. What are you going to do as an investor to help fix that problem? Um, I've got one recipe, which is, people hate when I say this, I don't know if freedom of choice is always a great thing anymore. Because when technology has created so much abundance of choice that you can't process all the choice, and remember how I talked about every choice creates cognitive load, you've overloaded your brain with too many things to choose and select from. So if instead I can help you with your cognitive offload, first by winning your trust, by revealing hyper-transparently all the data, all the science, the reproducibility, you know, what, who paid who what, like give that full recipe. Mm -hmm. If that can, you win through trust and um, sort of being open, then you will be able to make money through the convenience of it. I've given you the full playbook. This is what I do. Here's how you can do it. For the 10% are motivated to do that, they will. The 90% will say, good, I trust you. Please do it for me. That's a way to maybe offload that decision. Like, I would do that with, with you and food. If you offer me a bulletproof personalized meal plan, you'd be like, Dave, I trust you. Just tell me what to eat when. I'm not even going to think about it anymore. Right. That, yeah. that, that is a form of cognitive support provided that I know your agenda. It's in line with my agenda, your open book about how everything is done. The data is all there. And it, it's interesting because if you're feeling skeptical about it, look at Spotify's music recommendation engine. It's offloading the task of listening to a bunch of crap to find the stuff you like, because it's mostly right. Right. And I think the same thing happens with, well, allegedly Amazon's recommendation engine, although it seems like it's gone backwards in the last year because there's so much cheap stuff on there now. You know what's missing from that whole recommendation algorithm is the open sourcing and revealing of who paid who what to promote it. Like if that was all mm -hmm. open, we'd have more ability to discern, I think, what got placed there by who and what. A great example of that is, uh, I didn't realize this, one of the uh, original FDA food pyramid recommendations didn't have so many carbs and all these other things <laughs> in there, but it's all food political lobbying interests that wow. reverted it and, and kind of warped it. None of us knew that story. We didn't know who paid who what to break all those categories out and, and sort of change the way that pyramid was shaped, right? It's totally true. And and it's funny because paying to get someone's attention is a normal business behavior. It's called advertising and marketing. Right. Uh, and at the same time, you can also have corruption. Correct. Which is paying for stuff. And there are times when it crosses the line, but, but figuring that out, A, that it even happened, or B, whether it was inappropriate or not, Sometimes it's a matter of transparency. That's and right. Other times you just you just don't know. That's right. Because a lot of content marketing is mm -hmm. presented as factual, scientific, or other articles with no indication of who paid for it. Sure. And Absolutely. with what agenda behind it. Absolutely. It's one of the reasons on uh, Bulletproof Radio. Yeah. Um, at the end of or beginning, wherever we put it, um, there's a little thing that says, you know, hey, I, I run ads right. in here. Right. Right. Like I have sponsors. Right. Right. And it's great because running a podcast like this is actually kind of expensive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I, I feel super clean about it, but I, I disclose that 
even though podcasts, as far as I know, aren't required to. Right. But if you, I will be someday. So I'd rather mention it. And that's how you win trust. You yeah. just open up and show, like, look, there's here's all the money flows and from what, and there's their agendas. Yeah. And the deal is, you don't get on the show unless you're worth the audience's time. And I don't care about money. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like exactly. Yeah. Everything else, we'll talk about it. Oh, speaking of which, do you run a Patreon? I need to support you on the Patreon. <laughs> you know, I don't do Patreon. Okay. I, I figure Patreon's an interesting model where. Uh, for people who haven't seen it, you know, mm-hmm. if, if there's someone who has a cool blog, you can give them a buck a month or mm-hmm. whatever, and then they make enough of an income to become like a good journalist. You get enough followers, you get $200,000 a year, and you're making more than you did in your day job, right. and you've created something of value. I, I love that model. Yep. Um, my, my Patreon didn't exist when I started the Bulletproof blog, where I would have been in the yep. early days. It just took off so fast. Right it probably would have been a great thing. Right. What I did is I said, look, if you like this, you got to try the coffee because it's going to work. Uh-huh. And then, yeah. and it does, yeah. and it did, and yeah. it still does. Yeah. So the people who consume the content and get value from the yeah. show, yeah. they're going to order the Bulletproof bars, they're going to order the Bulletproof coffee. That's true. Uh, and it, I do, yep. And, <laughs> thank you. And and if they don't, right. it's because either the coffee didn't work for them, the bars didn't work for them, right. or whatever reason is, I still want them to get the knowledge. And, right. and I just made peace with that. Makes that sense. It, it's okay that someone hears this who never pays me a penny right. because I think the knowledge speaks and stands for itself. Right. And and that was one of the sticky points with the Patreon model is if you have something that's so valuable, don't you want to share it more broadly and not just the people who, who spend a dollar? Right. And, and I, like I, I, content wants to be free if I'm an old hacker, I guess that's kind of how I think about it. Right. Okay. Right. Right. Tim, I've got one more question for yeah. you before you rush off to mm-hmm. the airport. And you might have one of the most interesting answers to this. Oh, I, I replaced my game changers question after I wrote the book based yeah. on the podcast. Yep. And this is a question about longevity. Mm. I've been really public. I'm going to live to at least 180. Mm. What's your number? Man, that's a good one. I'll be candid. A lot of this biohacking stuff I did, it's because I was scared to die, you know? And I, I, I Absolutely. I, I was like, motivator. I want to be around forever. But now I realize it was, it's not duration, it's depth and quality. Yeah. Um, I've never said this publicly or out loud before, but I toy with the idea of just having a massive going out party someday. It's great. Like, I don't know, call it 80 years old or whatever, whatever, like the, what's that notion? Your, your, your health span, not yeah. lifespan. Like when, when I'm, when I can no longer be fully, you know, kind of like living life to the fullest in the way I want to be, maybe I just take all my remaining resources, give them away to all the charities I want, save, uh, you know, I don't know, hundred K and throw like the best going out rave party ever. And the stroke of midnight, it's like, I'm outie, nobody cries. See, I love you. You know, <laughs> that, that is a, a beautiful image. And my, my grandfather did something kind of similar. He didn't you know, give everything to, to charity because he wasn't super wealthy, you know, supported uh, all of his, his kids and whatnot. But he said, all right, guys, I just had this kidney thing. They're telling me that if I work really hard for a year, um, that I can probably get to the point where I can sit on the couch and watch golf and do dialysis three times a week. It's like, I don't want that life. Yeah. Uh, so he said, all right, everyone come here. I'm going on the wine diet. And he stopped eating or drinking anything except for wine. Yep. And, you know, given that his kidneys were in good shape, two days later, yep. he was done. But he was surrounded by loved ones and all. Right. And it takes courage to do that. But it's it's an approach to death that looks at, at death very differently than most people who are like, I'm going to scrabble for the last minute of crappy yes. quality life. Yep. So, and Dave, I wanted to share this with you, but I've been thinking of things like meditation almost as a chance to go rehearse your eventual death someday. Because when that day comes... You're sounding Buddhist. Kind of, but you know what? Your your body, your physiology, your brain, your ego is going to go fighting, kicking and screaming. No, one more day, one more moment. Yeah. 
But there's another way, which is like, oh, I'm graduating and to accept that. Right. And, and maybe that's a more peaceful way to go. So I do think about that of should we have a discussion hand in hand with longevity, but also about graceful, noble end of life? Because it's so taboo. We, we don't want to talk about it because it's scary, but there could be different ways to die, too. There are. And my real number isn't 180. It's I'd like to die at a time and by a method of my choice. Ooh, that might be it. That's my real deal here. Because if I'm done and I feel like there's no reason to be here, I'd I'd like the legal right, which actually it's a human right, whether or not it's legal, uh, to check out Mm -hmm. when I decide to. Right. um, And to do it in a way that, you know, maybe I want to go skydiving without a parachute. It might be really fun for a minute before you hit the ground. Totally. I have no idea. But whatever... Uh, whatever the the choice there is, it feels like it's a personal one. And when you share with your family and your community uh, and be celebrated, but man, the taboos are so strong. The taboos are so strong, right? And that's actually the real question behind longevity is, you know, why is it you're trying to live longer and do you just want to eke out more time? Or is it more about, again, that health span, like the quality years? If you can get 180 years of quality life, that's going to be awesome. That's all I want, right? right. I'll, I'll leave before then if it's not quality. Right. But the, the question about death as something you prepare for with meditation, when you get deep in the, the Buddhist teachings, remember I went to Tibet and Nepal to learn meditation from the masters and I, I have a side of me I, I don't expose that much of because it's frankly too weird. Yeah. But I've had a chance to meet like some epic level guru people who have studied this stuff for thousands of years and they'll talk about stuff uh, like that and the shamanic side of things. And I... I remember actually my my grandfather, um, the one I just mentioned, he was a devout atheist his whole life. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, that all this stuff is yep. BS. But on his deathbed, and when he made peace with the fact that he was going to die, he said, you know, I realize I've never done this before. So I'm going to be really curious about it. And mm-hmm. he, he raised his own curiosity, which I think helped him overcome whatever fear he had there. And he replaced it with scientific curiosity and, wow. and observation. And, and his thing was, well okay, if I have observation, then I need hypothesis and test. So I'm going to make the observation that I don't know. So I'll observe. But afterwards, the only test is if I can, if I can leave a sign for you guys, if they're, if that's all real, like I'll, I'll do something for you. Right? <laughs> uh, and, and we're like, how would we know? Right? right. But it was, it was a fascinating take on that to look at, to flip it around from fear to, I wonder what that is because yeah. it's inevitable. Right. I feel like if in the longevity world, we were to just dump the fear of death. To be like, look, it's going to happen because the universe will end at some point. Right. So if we can just accept that, let's get onto the quality thing, which if you do it right, will usually extend the length. Right. Right. That's right. Okay. And wouldn't that be interesting if then longevity was available to everybody, then it would bring up the question of like, oh, you get to choose when you want to check out now and how, because then you'd want to check out frankly, because you probably get bored. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not, I'm really okay with that. Like when I, my responsibilities are done to my family and I'm like, I, there's no more pleasure from love and community and serving others. And I feel like every stupid thing on the planet that needed breaking and re- remaking has been done. Right. Like, okay. I feel like that's going to be several hundred years. I, I'm not worried, but of course you're like, there's nothing here for me. Right. Like why wouldn't you go? So, but I, I think maybe yeah, maybe that's an unusual mindset. Who knows? Or maybe that's where we're all supposed to get to. Let's, <laughs> let's hope that's how it is. Yes. Tim, I uh, I do appreciate your perspective as a human being, and especially a human being directing hundreds of millions of dollars into the future of humanity. That's what VCs actually do. So thank you for your work uh, just as a person and at Mayfield, and thanks for being on Bulletproof Radio. Thanks for being one of my longtime heroes and inspirations. I really value this friendship we've had over time, and it's been such a gift to see us both sort of evolve on this path. Absolutely, and and likewise. (laughs)
If you like today's episode, you know what to do. Uh, support Mayfield-backed companies. Totally just kidding there. Uh, but you know what to do. Uh, go out there, and uh, if you liked him, what he had to say, check out uh, his Instagram thing. It's at time change, as in Tim Chang with a couple extra letters in there. Uh, and while you're at it, pick up a copy of Game Changers because you'll find a surprising number of things that Tim just mentioned are codified in those 46 laws that are in that book. Yeah, definitely. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.